Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. You're listening to episode 268 of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World, where we look at mysteries from the twin perspectives of faith and reason. In this episode, we're talking about hearing mysterious voices. I'm Dom Bettinelli, and joining me today is Jimmy Akin. Hey, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. What would you do if you started hearing voices in your head and no one was there? In mental health circles, hearing voices is often considered a symptom of illnesses such as schizophrenia mania, and depression. But what if what the voices tell you is true? What should you make of them then? And what could possibly explain this? That's what we'll be talking about on this episode of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World. Jimmy, where does our mystery begin today? It begins in London, England, and specifically it begins with a gentleman named Ikechekwu Obialo Azuonye. Uh, he is a consulting psychiatrist, and according to his online profile at researchgate.net, Ikechukwu Obialo Ozuanye currently works in the independent and private sector. Ikechukwu does research in behavioral science, psychiatry, and mental health legislation. He has a background in neurology and has worked in general adult and forensic psychiatry for most of his professional career. He is interested in consciousness research and supports progress in spirituality in psychiatry. Similarly, according to his profile at forensicandexpertwitness.co.uk, I have been a consultant in psychiatry since January 1985 and have undertaken independent medical legal work since 1990. In the course of the past 27 years, I have provided written as well as oral evidence to a wide range of decision makers, including courts and tribunals. The following are my areas of expertise. Mental capacity assessments and reports. Written and oral evidence to mental health tribunals and associate hospital managers panels regarding civil patients as well as mentally disordered offenders. Second opinions about treatment. Criminal matters. Family matters. Psychological injury. Housing. Immigration matters. Transcultural issues. Dr. Ezewanye holds multiple degrees, and he's well qualified to address multiple issues. Today's mystery involves one of the strangest cases that Dr. Ezewanye has ever encountered. He discussed the case at a conference, and he published an article on it in the British Medical Journal in December of 1997. The case is so strange that I've never heard of another case exactly like it, and I've asked people if they've heard of similar ones, and they haven't. I did online searches of other researchers who cited Dr. Azuanye's case, figuring that later research papers that uncovered similar cases would cite his as precedent, but I didn't find any of the papers uh, citing his that mentioned a similar case. I figured that if anybody had heard of another one, it would likely be Dr. Azuanye himself, you know, because anyone encountering anything similar might consult with him on the case or at least mention it to him. So I emailed Dr. Azawanye and asked him if, in all the years since he had the case, anyone had told him anything similar had happened in one of their patients. And he emailed me back and said, Dear Jim, good day and how are you? 
Thank you very much for your interest in my case report of December 1997. No, I have not come across any similar case at any time since then. Kind regards, Ike Azuanye. So even Dr. Azuanye himself has never heard a report of a similar case, and that illustrates how this one is really, really unique. The case involves a person hearing voices in their head. What does that normally signify? While hearing voices can be normal, it is often associated with various mental health issues. According to a 2003 paper in the journal Medical Hypotheses by Dr. Robert Bobrow, Hearing voices can be psychiatrically normal, for example, the voice of a recently departed loved one while grieving, or abnormal, associated with schizophrenia 60-90% to 90 of the time, with mania 20% of the time, and with depression almost 10% of the time. At least that represents a conventional psychiatric view. I actually think there are additional circumstances besides just being in grief where you might hear voices and it wouldn't be a sign of mental illness. But this gives you a sense of how the situation is treated in psychiatric circles. So if you are currently grieving and recently lost a loved one, hearing a voice, specifically the voice of the person you lost, may be normal. However, apart from that situation, it's conventionally thought in psychiatry to be associated with mental illness of some kind. 60 to 90% of the time, that illness will be schizophrenia. 20% of the time, it will be mania. And almost 10% of the time, it'll be depression. So unless you've lost someone, hearing voices is normally considered a symptom of mental illness, most commonly schizophrenia. And so that'll be the first thing that mental health professionals will be likely to diagnose you with, as we discussed in episode 262 on the Rosenhan experiment. Uh, Dr. David Rosenhan reported having people check into mental institutions claiming to hear voices that said things like empty, hollow, and thud, and they were almost all immediately diagnosed with schizophrenia. As we discussed in that episode, it appears that Dr. Rosenhan faked and misrepresented his data, but if you go to a mental health professional and report hearing voices, the most likely diagnosis you'll get is schizophrenia. Then let's look at the central figure in the case that Dr. Azuanye encountered. Who was she and what can you tell us? According to the article Dr. Azuanye published in the British Medical Journal in 1997, the woman can be described this way. Born in continental Europe in the mid-1940s, the patient settled in Britain in the late 1960s. After a series of jobs, she got married, started a family, and settled down to a full-time commitment as a housewife and mother. She rarely went to her general practitioner, as she enjoyed good health and had never had any hospital treatment. Her children had also been in good health. The British Medical Journal does not mention her nationality, but I've elsewhere heard Dr. Azuanye speak about this, and he indicated that she was from Switzerland, so she was, she was of Swiss origin. He says that she was born in the mid-1940s, which would suggest a time frame between 1944 and 1946, or at least between 43 and 47. But by the late 1960s, when she would have been between 20 and 24 years old, she had settled in Great Britain. She held a series of jobs, and she got married, apparently to a British husband, and became a housewife. Both she and her children experienced good health. For reasons of medical privacy, Dr. Azuanye does not give us her real name. 
Instead, he refers to her in his British Medical Journal article by the initials A.B. But A.B. is a little impersonal, so we're going to refer to her as Annabelle. And Dr. Azawanye reported that in late 1984, something very strange happened. In the winter of 1984, as she was at home reading, she heard a distinct voice inside her head. The voice told her, Please don't be afraid. I know it must be shocking for you to hear me speaking to you like this, but this is the easiest way I can think of. My friend and I used to work at the Children's Hospital, Great Ormond Street, and we would like to help you. If Annabelle was born in Switzerland in the mid-1940s, she would have been somewhere around 40 years old in 1984. Most likely, she would have been in her late 30s. So we'll assume that this was her age, uh, her late 30s, and perhaps around 38. And she heard a voice. Dr. Azawanye elsewhere says it was a male voice telling her that he and a friend used to work at the Children's Hospital on Great Ormond Street. It's formally known as the Great Ormond Street Hospital for Children. It was founded in 1852 as the Hospital for Sick Children, and according to Wikipedia, Great Ormond Street Hospital, informally GOSH or Great Ormond Street, formerly the Hospital for Sick Children, is a children's hospital located in the Bloomsbury area of the London Borough of Camden and a part of Great Ormond Street Hospital for Children, NHS Foundation Trust. The hospital is the largest center for child heart surgery in the UK and one of the largest centers for heart transplantation in the world. In 1962, they developed the first heart and lung bypass machine for children. With children's book author Roald Dahl, they developed an improved shunt valve for children with hydrocephalus and non-invasive percutaneous heart valve replacements. They did the first UK clinical trials of the rubella vaccine and the first bone marrow transplant and gene therapy for severe combined immunodeficiency. The hospital is the largest center for research and postgraduate teaching in children's health in Europe. In 1929, J.M. Barry donated the copyright to Peter Pan to the hospital. So it's quite famous, and it has a statue of Peter Pan next to its entrance. It also has a really impressive interior. Annabelle had heard of the Children's Hospital, but did not know where it was and had never visited it. Her children were well, so she had no reason to worry about them. This made it all the more frightening for her, and the voice intervened again. To help you see that we're sincere, we would like you to check out the following. And the voice gave her three separate pieces of information, which she did not possess at the time. She checked them out. And they were true. In his British Medical Journal article, Dr. Azawanye does not say what these three pieces of information were, but I found an interview he did with British journalist John Ronson, and he gives more detail about what they were. It was a male voice and said to her, there are two of us. We used to work at Great Ormond Street Hospital for Children. There's something we're going to tell you that will help you, but also said, you're going to think you're mad, but you're not. The more they tried to reassure her, the more she panicked. Said, all right, you go up to your balcony and we'll tell you what's happening in front of your house right now. Maybe you will believe us. They described to her, there's a, like a blue car coming around the corner. There's a white one in front of your house. Uh, there's a couple walking a dog. That sort of thing. But that made her even more frightened. 
So at least that gives us a sense of what the information was like. The voices said, go up on your balcony and here's what you're going to see. A blue car will be coming around the corner. A white car will be parked in front of your house and a couple will be walking a dog. Or at least it was things along those lines. I don't think Dr. Azawani is trying to give us a verbatim report, but it was stuff like that. In his journal article, he says, But this did not help because she had already come to the conclusion that she had gone mad. In a state of panic, Annabelle went to see her doctor, who referred her urgently to me. So since Annabelle was aware that hearing voices is frequently a symptom of mental illness, she had concluded that she had gone mad, even though that's not a technical term in psychiatry. And it's understandable why she would conclude this. Popular media regularly reports on people hearing voices who have gone crazy. Uh, for example, uh, you know, this story was taking place in 1984, and a few years before that, back in 1970, 76 and 77, the American serial killer David Berkowitz had become famous, as, world famous, as the Son of Sam killer. One of the things that had been widely reported about Berkowitz, and in fact the reason that he was reportedly called Son of Sam, was that he had been hearing hallucinatory voices. Specifically, it was reported that he was hearing hallucinatory voices coming from a dog that was possessed by an ancient spirit named Sam. Now, we discussed the Son of Sam killings back in episode 167 and again in episode 168. And as we heard in those, the idea that the dog was possessed by a spirit named Sam was actually a misunderstanding. But this was what was popularly reported. So Annabelle may have heard about David Berkowitz as just one example of hearing voices and thought, oh no, am I going crazy the way he did? She thus went to her National Health Service doctor, who immediately referred her to Dr. Azawanya. And as you'd expect, he immediately diagnosed her as having psychosis. I saw her at the psychiatric outpatients clinic and diagnosed a functional hallucinatory psychosis. I offered general supportive counseling as well as medication with thioridazine. To her great relief, the voices inside her head disappeared after a couple of weeks of treatment and she went off on holiday. In fact, she went to the city of Zurich in her home country of Switzerland. As far as I was concerned, this was a straightforward psychotic experience. Anyway, there was a drug at that time called thyroidazine, and I gave this lady uh, just 10 milligrams of it three times a day, and over a very short period of less than two weeks, the voices stopped. So she went on holiday to Zurich, and while she was there, the voices broke through the medication. There was something they wanted her to attend to very quickly. While she was abroad and still taking the thioridazine, the voices returned. They told her that they wanted her to return to England immediately, as there was something wrong with her for which she should have immediate treatment. By this time, she was also having other beliefs of a delusional nature. I really wish that the article described these other delusional beliefs, because I'd love to know what they were to see what bearing they might have on this case, but we're not told that. According to Dr. Azawanye's British Medical Journal article, She returned to London, and I saw her again at my outpatient's clinic. By this time, the voices had given her an address to go to. Reluctantly, and just to reassure her that it was all in her mind, her husband took her by car to the address 
in question. It was the computerized tomography department of a large London hospital. As she arrived there, the voices told her to go in and ask to have a brain scan for two reasons. She had a tumor in her brain and her brainstem was inflamed. Because the voices had told her things in the past that had turned out to be true, Annabelle believed them when they said she had a tumor and was in a state of great distress when I saw her the next day. But there's a bit more to this part of the story. In his interview with John Ronson, Dr. Azuanye says, It was at that point that these voices gave her an address to go to. And they gave the number of the street with the postcode. <laughs> now, <laughs> that was the point at which I had my first double take on this one because I thought voices giving an address and a postcode. Right. Her husband offered to take her to this address. And one of the voices said to her, You see those two houses in front of you? <laughs> Go through the gap between those two houses onto the next street. And she now found herself in front of a particular building, which was the Neuroscan Department of Queen Square Hospital. And they said to her then to knock on the door. And she said out loud, Why? And they said, Because your brainstem is inflamed and you have a tumor in your brain. So they gave her two clinical diagnoses. It was then that she got another appointment to see me urgently the next day. So the voices took her to a place where she could get neuroimaging, but they didn't just give her the address, perhaps because she might look up what was there and get scared off. Instead, they gave her a nearby address and then told her to go between two houses, at which point she found herself in front of the neuroimaging center. They then told her two things. She had an inflamed brain stem, and she had a brain tumor. These were both medical diagnoses, which leads us to the title of Dr. Azawanye's piece in the British Medical Journal, A Difficult Case, Diagnosis Made by Hallucinatory Voices. However, instead of heeding what the voices were telling her and having the neuroimaging done, she immediately went back to Dr. Azawanye for another psychiatric consultation. So the voices were probably right if they thought that she might reject a direct introduction to the idea of having neuroimaging. Her first instinct was to still think she was crazy and go back to a psychiatrist. According to Dr. Azawanye, In order to reassure her, I requested a brain scan, explaining in my letter that hallucinatory voices had told her that she had a brain tumor, that I had not personally found any physical signs suggestive of an intracranial space-occupying lesion, and that the purpose of the scan was essentially to reassure the patient. The request was initially declined on the grounds that there was no clinical justification for such an expensive investigation. It was also implied that I had gone a little overboard, believing what my patient's hallucinatory voices were telling her. Or, as he says in the interview, And I then offered to get a CT brain scan. Just because you believe the voices? No, or? just reassure her. The character of the response I received, uh, saying, yes, Dr. Azonia, we, we respect you very much as a clinician, but we think you've gone just a little bit overboard on this one. You appear to be believing your patient's hallucinations. Well, I, and I have to say, sitting here now, I, I'm, I'm thinking the same thing. So I said, as a favor to me, if you don't mind. Dr. Azawanye then began negotiating with Britain's National Health Service to get the scan done. 
And this illustrates the dangers of having a single-payer model for medical care in your country. It may generate the appearance of free medical care, but it's not really free at all. The costs still have to be paid. They're just disguised by taxes. And now you have a colossal bureaucracy that you have to convince to let you have medical treatment, unless you're super rich and can obtain it some other way. Fortunately, things aren't quite that bad here in the United States, at least not yet. They're still really bad, since here most medical care is paid for by insurance, and that also involves a colossal bureaucracy that is inefficient and drives up costs, too, which is the inevitable result of such bureaucracy. They blunt the effect of the market mechanism, which is to convey accurate pricing information. It's why the Soviet Union was such an economic disaster with a state-planned economy. And you can imagine what would happen to the price, for example, of food if we turned that sector of our economy over to the government or to insurance companies. Food is even more essential than medical care. You need food all the time. You don't need medical care all the time. But if we had a single-payer government agency that we had to use every time we needed to buy food, the costs would balloon. And the same would be true if we had food insurance and you needed to fill out paperwork if grocery stores had to have employees dedicated to processing food insurance claims and if we had food insurance companies with legions of employees needing to be paid. Food costs and the hassle of obtaining food would skyrocket. That's not to say that you can't have government or insurance programs to cover catastrophic emergency cases. But if you use such programs for regular forms of care, it will drive up prices and you will end up paying for those higher prices, as well as losing freedoms about what kind of care you are allowed to have. You're also likely to get a stifling of medical innovation, which is why the U.S. produces more new medical treatments than countries with socialized medicine. And even though things aren't quite as bad in America as they are in the U.K., they're still bad. So this hindered Annabelle from being able to get the brain scan she needed, which was a pity because of what they learned when the brain scan was finally done. Eventually, after some negotiation, the scan was done in April. The initial findings led to a repeat scan with enhancement in May, revealing a left posterior frontal parathalcine mass which extended through the falks to the right side. It had all the appearances of a meningioma. A meningioma is a brain tumor arising from the meninges, or membranes, that surround the brain and the spinal cord. They often grow silently, as in this case, but they can be extremely serious. Dr. Azawanye describes how surprised the neuroimaging professionals were when they saw the tumor. They did the scan, and... There was the tumor sitting there, just as the voices said it would be. In fact, they were so surprised, they called me to come and look at the scan with the patient still in the machine. So the voices were absolutely right? Totally right. Did the voices say to her, we told you so? No, but they said something even more interesting. We'll get back to what the voices told her, but we're not quite at that part of the story yet. Here's what happened next. The consultant neurosurgeon to whom I referred Annabelle noted the absence of headache or any other focal neurological deficits related to this mass, and discussed with Annabelle and her husband 
the pros and cons of immediate operation as against waiting for symptoms to appear. In the end, it was agreed to proceed with an immediate operation. Annabelle's voices told her that they were fully in agreement with that decision. So they had a second opinion from the voices in Annabelle's head, and they fully agreed that an immediate operation was needed, which was consistent with how urgently they had been trying to get Annabelle to act on their advice. So she went into the operating theater. These were the notes of the operation carried out in May 1984. A large left frontal bone flap extending across the midline was turned following a bifrontal skin flap incision. Meningioma about two and a half inches by one and a half inches in size arose from the falx and extended through to the right side. A small area of tumor appeared on the medial surface of the brain. The tumor was dissected out and removed completely with its origins in the falx. I won't go through all the medical terminology in this excerpt, but the upshot is that they removed a brain tumor that was two and a half inches by one and a half inches, or six by four centimeters from her head. It was about the size of a jumbo egg. Now we come to the interesting thing the voices told Annabelle. When the lady came out of theater, they said to her, we're pleased to have helped you. Goodbye. And they never came back. They never came back. Or, as stated in the British Medical Journal article, Annabelle later told me when she recovered consciousness after the operation, the voices told her, We are pleased to have helped you. Goodbye. There were no post-operative complications. The dosage of dexamethasone was halved every four days, and then it was stopped. She was on prophylactic anticonvulsants for six months. Antipsychotic medication was discontinued immediately after the operation, and there was no return of the hallucinatory voices or the delusions which she had expressed. Dexamethasone is a steroid that is used to bring down inflammation. She had apparently been on that because of the swollen brainstem she had, and now they titrated or adjusted her dosage downward by cutting it in half every four days. They did keep her on anticonvulsants for six months to try to avoid her having any seizures after the operation, but she didn't have any complications following the operation. They also immediately took her off the antipsychotic medication they had put her on to stop the voices. And despite this, the voices never returned, even though she was no longer on the medication meant to stop them. After they said goodbye, they just left. It appears all they were concerned with was helping her with the inflamed brainstem and the brain tumor, and so they just disappeared. What happened with Annabelle afterwards? She was fine. And 12 years after the operation, at Christmas of 1996, she got into contact again with Dr. Azawanya. Annabelle telephoned me last Christmas to wish me and family a merry festive season, and to tell me that she had been completely well in the 12 years since the operation. It was this telephone call that brought this case to mind again. It is well known that intracranial lesions can be associated with psychiatric symptomatology but this is the first and only instance I have come across in which hallucinatory voices sought to reassure the patient of their genuine interest in her welfare, offered her a specific diagnosis, there were no clinical signs that would have alerted anyone to the tumor, directed her to the type of hospital best equipped to deal with her problem, expressed pleasure that she had at last received the treatment they desired for her, bid her farewell, and thereafter disappeared. I presented her case at a conference later that year. 
Annabelle attended and was closely questioned by several people about the various aspects of her experience. Or, as he says in the interview, And you presented her, didn't you? Whatever? I did. I presented her. Uh, they were all free. She was invited in to talk to the academic staff and the students. And they put all kinds of questions to her, trying to understand what had happened to this lady. And the audience was split three ways. The three-way split in the audience has to do with the theories that could possibly explain this event, which we'll turn to next. And before we get to those theories, we'd like to take a moment to thank our patrons who make this show possible, including Mark Y, David H, Scott D, John S, and John V. Their generous tax-deductible donations at sqpn.com give make it possible for us to continue Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World and all the shows that StarQuest. And you can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is also brought to you by Fairvento Law PLLC, now assisting clients with expungements and set-asides of Michigan convictions. To learn more, call 231-202-3321 or go to fearventolaw.com, F-I-O-R-V-E-N-T-O law.com. And by Deliver Contacts, offering honest pricing and reliable service for all your contact lens needs. See the difference at delivercontacts.com. Jimmy, what theories are there about Annabelle and her diagnostic voices? Essentially, there are three theories that we need to look at. First, could this have been a case of fraud? Because we always need to consider the possibility of fraud. Second, could there be a natural, non-paranormal explanation for the voices and their accurate diagnosis? And third, could this have been a paranormal event? And if so, what was the cause? So what can we say about this case from the reason perspective? Could Annabelle have just been committing fraud by claiming to hear the voices? And if so, what could her motive have been? The motive would have been financial. The claim is that Annabelle may have learned about the tumor, but as a Swiss national, she wasn't entitled to Britain's so-called Free National Health Service or NHS care. So she faked the voices to get access to the British healthcare system. John Ronson explains... There were other people there who thought she was a fraud. But as a Swiss national, she wanted free health care on the NHS, so she pretended not to know about her pre-existing brain tumour. But that can't have been the case, because she'd been living in Britain for ages and would have been entitled to free health care. As I pointed out, free health care isn't really free. That's just misdirection by government or insurance companies to make you think you're getting something for nothing when really it has to be paid for, either by taxes or insurance premiums, and you get a bloated bureaucracy that will drive up the prices and limit medical innovation in the meantime. However, putting that aside, Dr. Azawanye went into more detail about this possibility. Playing on the name of the popular 1990s television show The X-Files, he refers to those who opposed an exotic explanation as X-phobes and says, the ex-phobes had a very different formulation. According to them, Annabelle had been given the diagnosis of a brain tumor in her original country and wanted to be treated for free under the NHS. Hence, they surmised she had made up the convoluted tale about voices telling her this and that. But Annabelle had lived in Britain for 15 years and was entitled to NHS treatment. 
Besides, she had been so relieved when the voices first disappeared on Thioridazine that she had gone on holiday to celebrate the recovery of her sanity. Thus, not only was Annabelle already entitled to National Health Service care, she was so overjoyed when the antipsychotic medication made the voices go away that she went on vacation to another country to celebrate what she thought was her newly recovered sanity, which is behavior inconsistent with the idea that she was committing fraud to get money or health care, especially given the fact that international vacations cost money. So I don't think the fraud theory is a plausible explanation for this case. What about the second explanation? Could there be a natural, non-paranormal explanation for the voices and what they told her? Dr. Azwanye has this to say on that subject. So there were those who said the tumor itself must have been responsible for the voices. Yeah. Tumors can cause any kind of experience, including voices. And he's right. Brain tumors can distort your perception of reality. They can cause you to have any kind of experience, including hallucinatory voices. That is a known phenomenon. But in this case, the voices were right. Annabelle did have inflammation and a brain tumor. So how would we naturally explain that? In his BMJ article, Dr. Azuanye elaborates on this theory. There was a group at the case conference who offered a different opinion. Their view was that the total lack of physical signs notwithstanding, it was unlikely that a tumor of that size had had absolutely no effect on the patient. She must have felt something, they argued. They suggested that a funny feeling in her head had led to her to fear that she had a brain tumor. That fear had led to her experience of hallucinatory voices. She may have unconsciously taken in more information about various hospitals than she realized, and this information was reproduced by her mind as part of the auditory hallucinatory experience. The voices expressing satisfaction with the outcome of her treatment were her own mind expressing its relief that the emergency was over and the total disappearance of psychiatric symptoms after the removal of the tumor showed that these symptoms were at least directly related to the presence of the lesion, and may in fact have been produced by the lesion itself. This theory is possible. It could explain what happened in Annabelle's case in purely natural terms. But possibility is not probability. Just because it's a possible explanation doesn't mean that it's the probable one. And how you estimate the probabilities will depend on your other beliefs. If you're a strict naturalist, someone who doesn't believe that the paranormal or the supernatural exists, then this theory is the only one that will work. So from a viewpoint of strict naturalism, this would have to be what happened, or at least it would seem so. But if you're not a strict naturalist, if you think the paranormal or the supernatural does exist, or even if you're just open to the possibility that they may exist, then you have to think more deeply about this explanation. You can't just assume it's true on grounds of naturalism. Does the theory run into problems when you do that? It does, because it's a complex theory that goes contrary to the appearances. The voices presented themselves as those of people who formerly worked at Great Ormond Street Children's Hospital. So, that's what the case appears to involve, the voices of former children's hospital workers. The idea that no such people were involved in thus goes contrary to the appearances of the case. It rejects the appearances rather than embracing them. 
You can propose explanations that deny the appearances, but it's a general principle. If you're going to deny what seems obvious, you need reasons for that. And this explanation is also a complex one. It requires that Annabelle felt the brain tumor and developed a fear, at least subconsciously, that she had a brain tumor as opposed to just a headache or something. And we don't have any indication of that. So that's an assumption without evidence to back it up. It also requires that she subconsciously knew more about the location of hospitals than she knew consciously, like when they took her to the neuroimaging center. But we also don't have any evidence for that. And it requires her subconscious mind to have created messages from the voices that mirrored the different stages of her medical journey, which is quite a stretch and doesn't seem probable to me. If that kind of thing was likely to happen, why don't we have other cases like this one in the medical literature? Why don't we have multiple people with brain tumors who hear voices that help them navigate fixing the problem in a sensible step-by-step manner like happened with Annabelle? The fact that this case is so unique is an argument that this kind of thing is not likely to happen naturally because lots of people have brain tumors, but this doesn't happen to them. There also are factors that the theory doesn't explain, like the fact that Annabelle also had an inflamed brainstem, which she was hardly likely to feel the same way she might feel a tumor the size of a jumbo egg. And then there's the fact that the voices told her what was happening in her neighborhood outside of her house, things that she didn't already know, but that she was able to verify by going out on her balcony. Feeling a brain tumor would not let you know things like that, unless you're in that John Travolta movie phenomenon. Um, You know, not unless the brain tumor had caused you to develop psychic powers. That brings us to the paranormal explanations for Annabelle's experience. What should we say here? As we've discussed in previous episodes, one of the regular problems in parapsychology is whether a given phenomenon actually requires the spirit of a non-living person, or whether it could be explained by psychic functioning on the part of a living person, what's known as living agent psi. Well, hypothetically, Annabelle could have psychically detected the brain tumor and the inflammation, and what was going on in her neighborhood, and then her subconscious mind knitted together these psychic impressions and produced the voices that she was hearing. So on this hypothesis, no actual spirits were involved. Another way that living agent Psy could be involved would be if there were former employees of the children's hospital involved, but they were still living. Maybe two former hospital employees psychically diagnosed her at a distance, and then psychically contacted her to let her know about the problem. On either of these scenarios, no departed spirits would be involved, just living people using psychic functioning, either Annabelle herself or two former hospital employees. What do you make of the living agent psi explanations? I think they're both possible explanations, but that doesn't make them the most likely explanations. Let's consider what the voices initially told her. They said, Please don't be afraid. I know it must be shocking for you to hear me speaking to you like this, but this is the easiest way I can think of. My friend and I used to work at the Children's Hospital, Great Ormond Street, and we would like to help you. 
So first, they said, my friend and I used to work at the children's hospital. If you hear a disembodied voice speaking in the past tense of what they used to do, it strongly suggests that they are deceased. That's the natural interpretation of hearing a disembodied voice telling you what they used to do. You're going to understand it to be referring to what they used to do in life. You're not going to interpret it as meaning, oh, this is a retired hospital worker that's still living who's talking to me. You're going to think, this is a deceased hospital worker talking to me. So the appearances in this case would be that a couple of deceased spirits were involved. And on general principles, we should stick with how a case appears until such time as we have evidence that the appearances are mistaken. So the involvement of spirits has a leg up on the idea that either Annabelle or two living but retired hospital workers were responsible. Second, notice that the voices were aware that this mode of communication could be alarming to Annabelle. They said, please don't be afraid. I know it must be shocking for you to hear me speaking to you like this. Yet despite that, the voice said, but this is the easiest way I could think of. So consider that. The idea of contacting Annabelle telepathically was the easiest way they could help get her the information that she needed. That statement strongly suggests that the voice was of a departed human spirit, because if these were living individuals, this wouldn't be the simplest way of contacting her. They could just pick up the phone or write her a concerned letter. Uh, either of those would be much easier for a living person to do than sending a complex telepathic message, and it wouldn't have been as alarming or shocking for her to receive a message like that. She would not, for example, have thought she was going crazy by hearing voices. So it sounds like you're leaning toward the idea of actual spirits being involved. Yes, and this is what some in the conference audience thought. In the British Medical Journal, uh, Dr. Azawanye writes, People who would be called X-Files today rejoiced that what had happened to her was a clear instance of telepathic communication from two well-meaning people who had psychically found that Annabelle had a tumor and sought to help her. He also commented on it in the interview. The most interesting was to hear fellow psychiatrists saying this must have been a paranormal experience. There were real individuals who had a way to help her, and they did. Where are you on in that split? I mean, clearly you don't think she's a fraudster, so... Not at all. I personally believe that she was helped by someone. In my view, this world that we experience is one of many worlds, and I have no difficulty accepting the reality of non-physical worlds and its inhabitants, and I think that she was helped in that manner. And I agree. As someone who believes in both the paranormal and the supernatural, I think that even though other explanations are possible, the most probable explanation, given the facts, is the idea that the spirits of deceased hospital workers contacted Annabelle. So that means what can we say about this case from the faith perspective then? Could the voices have been demons? Well, anything is possible. But as we discussed in episode 188, you can't just assume things are demons. You need evidence for that. And I don't see any evidence of demonic activity in this, in this case. 
the voices didn't behave like demons. They didn't try to lead Annabelle or anyone around her into sin. They didn't urge her to adopt false religious beliefs. They didn't try to take over her body. They didn't try to get her to worship idols. They were simply interested in alerting her to a serious medical problem she had, and then they ceased communicating with her once that medical problem was taken care of. I thus think that the most likely explanation is that they were departed human spirits who were trying to help Annabelle. Christian doctrine acknowledges that the spirits of departed humans exist. More specifically, Catholic doctrine acknowledges that spirits of people in heaven, the saints, can appear to people on earth, and Catholic theology commonly holds that spirits in purgatory can also appear to people. So, whether these uh, spirits were of hospital workers in heaven or in purgatory, Catholic theology would have no problem with the idea of them appearing to Annabelle in audio form to help her address her medical issue. You just said appear to her, but she didn't ever see them. No, but in parapsychology appearances, or apparitions as they're known, don't have to involve sight. You can have a visible apparition, but spirits can also appear in other ways, such as in the form of a voice. They can even manifest to other senses, like touch or smell. So apparition is a general term that applies to any way that a spirit manifests, regardless of the sense or senses involved. Catholic theology also acknowledges that spirits can manifest in multiple ways, Specifically, what Annabelle experienced would be known as a locution. In English, the word locution refers to an act of speech or an utterance, from the Latin word locutio, meaning a speech or discourse, as in, I am locutus of Borg, for Star Trek fans, when Captain Picard was assimilated and speaking on behalf of the Borg. Well, in a Christian context, when someone hears an interior voice, It's a form of private revelation known as an interior locution, and that's what Annabelle had when she heard the voices in her head. So, Jimmy, what's your bottom line on the mysterious voices that Annabelle heard? The case that Dr. Azuanye describes involving Annabelle is absolutely fascinating. The voices contacted her, said they were former medical professionals who wanted to help her. They told her things she didn't know about her neighborhood to convince her. When she took medication that made the voices go away for a time, they undertook the effort to break through the effects of the medication while she was on vacation and alerted her to the urgency of her situation. They led her to where she could get neuroimaging. They gave her two diagnoses that turned out to be accurate. She had both brain inflammation and a brain tumor. They concurred with living medical professionals that she needed an operation quickly And once the operation was successfully performed, they said they were pleased to have helped her, and then they said goodbye and never came back. The fraud explanation for this experience does not work. The natural explanation is possible, but not at all probable, unless you're a strict naturalist. The living agent psi explanations, both of them, are also possible, but the most probable explanation is that this case involved exactly what it appeared to involve. Two deceased medical professionals were trying to help a living woman who had an urgent medical condition that she didn't know about. Jimmy, what further resources can we offer to the listeners and viewers? We'll have a link to Dr. Aswanye's article, Diagnosis Made by Hallucinatory Voices. 
Also, we'll have a couple of his profiles on forensicandexpertwitness.co.uk and researchgate.net. Robert Bobro's paper, Paranormal Phenomena in the Medical Literature, Sufficient Smoke to Warrant a Search for Fire. Also, information about the Great Ormond Street uh, Hospital and John Ronson's interview with Dr. Izawanye. All right. And so that's what will do it for us this time. What are your theories about Annabelle and her remarkable experience with the disembodied voices who accurately diagnosed her condition? You can let us know by visiting sqpn.com or the Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World Facebook page, sending an email to feedback at mysterious.fm, sending a tweet to at mys underscore world, visiting the StarQuest Discord community at sqpn.com slash discord, or calling our mysterious feedback line at 619-738-4515. That's 619-738-4515. And I want to say a special thank you to Oasis Studio 7 for the video and animation work they did on this episode. Uh, you can hire them yourself uh, for your video and animation needs, and you can check out their work by going to my YouTube channel, youtube.com slash Jimmy Aiken. While you're there, um, I'd really appreciate it if you would subscribe and hit the bell notification so that you always get a notification whenever I have a new video, whether it's Mysterious World or one of the other videos I do. I am trying to grow my channel, and so I'd really appreciate it if you subscribe and also hit the like button on videos to let other people know that there's something interesting for them to watch. So, Jimmy, what's our next episode going to be about? Next week, we're going to be talking about communication with the departed that goes the other way. We'll be speaking about and to a priest named Father Nathan Castle. He has a special ministry to souls in purgatory. He'll be telling us about how he learns of the souls that need his help and how he helps them make progress in the afterlife. He's got some really interesting experiences to recount. So you won't want to miss that. Excellent. Be sure to check out the Mysterious World bookstore at MysteriousWorldStore.com for links to all the books and videos that Jimmy mentions in the show. You can find links to Jimmy's resources from our discussion on our show notes at Mysterious.fm slash 268. And remember, to help us continue to produce the podcast, please visit SQPN.com slash give. Jimmy Yakin's Mysterious World is also brought to you in part by Rosary Army, featuring award-winning Catholic podcasts, rosary resources, videos, and the School of Mary online community, prayer, and learning platform. Learn how to make them, pray them, and give them away while growing in your faith at rosaryarmy.com and schoolofmary.com. And by Tim Shevlin's Personal Fitness Training for Catholics, providing spiritual and physical wellness through personalized nutrition workout and prayer programs and daily accountability check-ins learn more by visiting fitcatholics.com until next time jimmy aiken thank you for exploring with us our mysterious world thanks dom and once again i'm dom bettinelli thank you for listening to jimmy aiken's mysterious world on starquest If you've enjoyed Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World, you'll also enjoy another StarQuest Network show, The Catholics of Oz. Find it wherever you can find podcasts or at sqpn.com slash oz.